We read Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 45, that immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. And he sent the multitude away, and when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now we're coming on the coattails of one of the most amazing miracles in the entire New Testament. Jesus and the disciples, they get into the boat, they go to a deserted place for a little rest and relaxation. But upon their journey, all of the people within the surrounding towns, word begins to spread where Jesus is going and a multitude gathers before Jesus can even dock. He gets there, he's moved with compassion and he begins to teach them amazing things, a great sermon. The disciples come to him, it's dinner time, it's dusk, they bring a need. People are starting to get hungry. You should send them away, Jesus. To which Jesus responded, you feed them. And we find here an amazing miracle that takes place, traditionally known as the feeding of the 5,000. Though that's in some ways misleading, simply because there were only 5,000 men that excludes women and children. The number could be anywhere from between 20 to 30,000 that Jesus feeds with five loaves and two fish. It's an incredible miracle. It's an awesome miracle. But we're, indicate, we're told, we're given an indication that something is happening on the shore that we might not be privy to without maybe consulting some of the other passages because there's some urgency here. Mark tells us that following this event, the scene of location, the scene of activity hasn't changed, that immediately Jesus goes into action. Now, what is happening on the beach that causes Jesus to act in such an urgent way. Please realize what's happening is hectic. If you reference John's account of the story of what's happening on the beach, we're told that Jesus perceived that they, this incredible multitude, were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus has just performed a radical public miracle. He's fed the multitude with limited resources, this process of multiplication. It's an awesome scene. It's a radical scene. It's a revolutionary scene. And people are so blown away by what they've just witnessed that they're starting to move into action, that Jesus is to be their king. And Jesus perceives that this is happening. He perceives that within the multitude, there's some rumblings that this man should be king. He should lead a revolution. The disciples are also beginning to, to, to spread the word. There's an excitement that's being generated within the crowd. People are beginning to go ahead and, and set, they're already organized, they're beginning to set plans in motion. And really, what's interesting is this could have been a, 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 the beginnings of a revolution. I mean, with such a large multitude there, the shores of Galilee, Jesus could have rallied the troops. Jesus could have made his way down uh, the, Jordan, the Jordan Valley as he's making his way. No doubt people would have flocked. Jesus was such a radical revolutionary character that people would have rallied around him if he had wanted to be king. Now, no doubt when it was all said and done, the Jews would have never been a match for the Romans. If you're a student of history, just examine an earlier revolution known as the Maccabean Revolution to see that the Romans were pretty strong and were pretty powerful. The people here are seeing Jesus as king. And really, can you blame them? 
I mean, Jesus has just accomplished something that I think we all would want any government to accomplish, to take limited resources and take care of everybody's needs. I mean, really, if you think about it, if Jesus could take five loaves and two fish and you're there on the shore that day, you're thinking, this is the perfect king that he was able to take these limited things, he was able to feed every, can you imagine what he could do with not limited resources, but maybe more resources, abundant resources? You see, there's some justification for, for what's happening here, and yet Jesus is sensing it. Things are beginning to get hectic. The reality is it could very quickly become out of control with such a large number of people that we're told that Jesus does three things. He knows the mood of the crowd, and so he immediately does three things, two of which are kind of bizarre when you think about it. First, we're told that immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go. He made. You know, you don't often read about Jesus making people do things. As a matter of fact, it seems almost contradictory to some of the things that we've seen concerning Jesus because Jesus honored man's free will. Man honored people's ability to make a choice. Jesus very rarely ever forced anyone to do anything against their will, but we're told here that he made, in the Greek, it means that he compelled by force. This was not optional. Immediately he gets the 12, he gets them to the boat, he kicks them in the rear, and he says, you're going. He's not giving an option, he's giving a command. No doubt they're resisting in a bit, but he forces them into the boat and he forces them to go. Understand that Jesus honors the free will of mankind. And I don't think this is an example contrary to it. However, Jesus will allow no man to dictate his fate. Hey, you're free to make whatever choices you want to make concerning Jesus. But please understand, your free choices concerning Jesus have no bearing on who Jesus actually is or what he's come to accomplish or who he was and what's, what, what he wants to do. Why force them to go? Well, the disciples wanted to take Jesus and have Jesus do what they wanted him to do, not necessarily what Jesus had come to do. And so Jesus, the first thing he does is he makes the disciples go. The second thing is we're told that he sent the multitude away. He sent. The Greek word here is apolio, which is a, a very fascinating term, especially in this context. It was a term used within divorce. It was kind of the, the modern idea of kicking someone to the curb. It was like you got caught red-handed, you did something that ticked your wife off. She's going to divorce you, but before she divorces you, she kicks you out. She takes all your stuff. She throws it out the front door into the front yard. She has the locks changed. The word here that he sent is the idea to dismiss from the house. Jesus, you know, he always welcomed the multitude, didn't he? Even this multitude, when the story begins... Is he, he was moved with compassion. He welcomed. He had gone for some R&R. &R. He saw them, and the plan changed. But here, he sends them away. It's interesting. 
Why would Jesus send them away? I think there's three reasons. First, they wanted to make Jesus into something he wasn't. Jesus came to be a savior, not to be a king at this point. The second idea, the second reason is that if they had accomplished their purpose, let's say that they had rallied the troops and decided to make Jesus king whether he wanted to or not, do you realize this would have really convoluted and complicated his ultimate purpose? Jesus had come to wear a crown of thorns, not a crown of gold. The crown of gold will come, but this would have convoluted his ultimate purpose of saving man from sin, not liberating the Jews from the tyranny of Rome. You can also say, and probably most importantly, that in the long run, if what happened on the shore here was as the multitude had intended, even if the word had gotten out what the plan had been, this would have given Jesus' Jewish enemies these religious leaders and these political leaders that are already plotting his death, it would have given them exactly what they needed. They would have provided a legitimate reason for Rome to have Jesus arrested. You see, it was illegal under Roman law to be a political activist. I mean, if word had gotten to Rome that there was this carpenter from Nazareth that had huge multitudes flocking out and they were going to make him king, well, it would have demanded Roman involvement to keep the peace. And so Jesus, he sends, he makes the disciples go, he sends the multitude away. And then the third thing is he departs to a mountaintop to pray. Now, why would Jesus depart alone to the mountain to pray? Kind of seems odd with the hectic commotion happening on the shore, sending the disciples across the sea, kicking the multitude out. Why would Jesus get alone and pray? Well, once again, I think there are three simple explanations. First, you can't help but at least within context, note that there had to be some past disappointment that Jesus needed to handle. Jesus was a human being, just like you and I. And he dealt with very real, honest human emotions. Later on in the story, Jesus will get word that his best friend, Lazarus, has died. And when Jesus comes to the tomb, we're told that he weeps. Not just trickles of tears, but deep, passionate, emotional tears that Jesus wept over the loss of his friend. If you keep in mind, what was one of the precipitating factors why Jesus and the disciples were getting away? Why they were taking a little vacation to start with? Well, Jesus has just received word that his cousin, John the baptizer, has been executed. And so you can sense that Jesus recognizes his need to, to go to the Father and to, to give his cares and, and to lay out his needs to deal with past disappointment. That's why he went and prayed. Understand that that's a function of prayer for you. Is this a way that we can deal with past disappointment? That we can cast our cares to him, knowing what? That he cares for us. But I think we can also say that Jesus spent some time in prayer here within context of what was immediately happening. There was some future anxiety. You see, Jesus knew 
what the future would hold. From this point, Jesus will return to the populated regions there of Galilee. This will be his last time making the circuit, ministering to the people, before he makes his way to Jerusalem knowing it would result in his death. We are T-minus and counting. Ultimately, Jesus' future was now, and Jesus knew it. What was happening there on the shore, the fickleness, fickle nature of the mob was an indicator. Jesus knew what was coming, and Jesus needed to deal with the anxiety of it. That's kind of a weird thought for us to think that Jesus dealt with anxiety concerning the cross. There in Gethsemane, the night before, Jesus is there, and what does he do? He's praying again, praying, Lord, if there's any way this cup can pass, but not my will, but your will be done. And we're told that Jesus, that it was such an emotional, psychological deal, knowing what was coming, that, that he sweat what appeared to be drops of blood. See, Jesus dealt with anxiety, knowing what was coming, the real human aspects of knowing what was coming making the decision to willingly lay down his life. But I love this. You know, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, we're told, to be anxious for nothing, but to do what? And everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. You see, Jesus went to the mountain to pray, first to deal with past disappointment. The Lord cares for us. This is how we deal with those, those real and honest and raw needs, those disappointments. But Jesus also went to deal with future anxiety, making his requests known. But then I think the third thing is the present circumstance. Past disappointment, future anxiety, but present circumstance. Why? Because Jesus knew what the disciples were facing. He had sent them across the Sea of Galilee, knowing that a storm was on the brew. And from the mountaintop, Jesus could see the disciples straining and struggling, the waves crashing over the bow, the wind whipping, the rain beating down. Jesus is watching it all. And what is he doing? Well, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we're told that Jesus lives for a reason. Why? to make intercession for us. What was Jesus praying about? Yeah, he was praying about his own disappointment. He was praying about future anxiety. But Jesus was watching these men that he loved, that he cared for. He was praying that the Lord would strengthen them, that God would encourage them, that they would persevere, that Jesus had their back. Now we're told, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. And he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, pause for a moment. Now we talked before that there are two types of storms. Storms being a picture of circumstance and situations that arise within our lives. There are always two kinds of storms. There are storms of correction, and there are storms of perfection. Two different kinds of storms that you'll find yourself in ultimately. And understand that all storms ultimately are Christ-centric. Every storm is always about a human being and God, truthfully. For example, a storm of correction 
is designed to stop us in our tracks, to stop us doing what we're doing, like God allowing the storm to come as a consequence of my stupid decisions, storms of correction to arise within my life for one reason. God wants me to repent. Storms of correction bring us to Christ. They intend to bring us to Christ through repentance. But we all have a decision to make, to continue to push headlong into the storm and our own defiance, or to say, wow, God is allowing these things to happen to cause me to turn and to change and to make a decision that I got to live in a godly way. But we also see that storms of perfection are also Christ-centric. Storms of perfection intend to make us, you and I, more like Christ through refinement. Storms of correction bring us to Christ through repentance, but storms of perfection make us more like Christ through refinement. Now, Jesus is going to use this storm for two purposes in the lives of his disciples. And subsequently, Jesus uses storms often for the same reason in our own lives. First, the storm will be used to prepare the disciples for the future. Now, this is the second storm the disciples have faced, as we've seen in our own travels through the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 4, if you recall, there was the story of Jesus and the disciples in the boat. Jesus is asleep in the hull. The storm, the wind, the waves, everything begins to kick up. Jesus is there. The disciples begin to freak out. Jesus is like, what are you doing? He rebukes the wind, the waves, boom, a miracle happens. Jesus deals with the storm. Jesus, in Mark chapter 4, and our first storm, he is in the boat. Jesus is physically present. But in the second storm, the storm we're reading about right now, here in Mark 6, Jesus is on the land. Jesus is not in the boat. He's on the land. The disciples are there alone, or so they think. In the first storm, Jesus was physically present. In the second storm, Jesus was physically absent. And what is Jesus doing? As the rabbi, preparing his disciples for what? For his ultimate departure. That his time with them is short, that Jesus wouldn't always be physically present. And he's preparing them to recognize this important lesson. That whether Jesus was there physically or not, Jesus was with them either way. That whether they could see Jesus or whether they couldn't, Jesus knew what they were facing, Jesus knew what they were going through, and Jesus would give them the strength either way. They think they're alone, but what had they forgotten? That Jesus was on a mountain doing what? Interceding on their behalf. Jesus would use this occasion to prepare the disciples for his physical departure while reassuring them of his constant presence. He's preparing them for the future, which on a side note, think about it. In the book of Acts, Jesus ascends to be with the Father. He says, wait in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost takes place. And within the span of a few weeks, we see an incredible blessing take place within the church, right? Within the lives of these very men. What do we see happen? The blessing. We see 5,000 men get saved. Make a decision to follow Christ. 
God, Jesus, continuing to multiply. 5,000. You think by accident? What follows immediately after this outpouring of blessing of 5,000 getting saved? We see an immediate storm, a storm of persecution, where an opposition arises in Jerusalem, where Peter and John and some of the disciples are being arrested and being brought before the Sanhedrin, expecting that their own lives might be laid down and martyred in the process. Isn't it interesting that we see Jesus preparing them for this event and this story? But the second reason, beyond preparing them for the future, that Jesus allows the storm, is he wants to use the storm to teach the disciples a lesson that they had yet to learn. And this is important. Our scene of activity. We find four interesting bits of information. First, the boat was in the middle of the sea. Secondly, they were straining at rowing. Thirdly, the wind was against them. And fourth, it was about the fourth watch of the night. These are some of the details we're given to give us some context to the story. And so what do we see? First, it's the fourth watch of the night, which places our time somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. It is the darkest point of the night. It's pitch dark. And this also tells us that the disciples have probably been rowing for about nine hours. The middle of the, of the night, the darkest point of the night, they've been rowing for nine hours. We're also told that the wind was against them, which means that there's a headwind. So they find that they've pulled down the sail, sail does no good, and they are rowing. They are rowing across the sea. The word straining is the Greek word bazanizo, which means to test the metal of, or can literally be translated to torture. Like they are at the point of breaking, physical exhaustion. They're already tired. By the time they even went over to the, to the shore to begin with, they were tired. Then there was a whole day of ministry, so they were more tired. And then they get in the boat and they have to go back, but there's a wind against them, which means there's no sail. So they got the sail down and they're rowing, but it's difficult. So it's the darkest point of the night. It's 3 a.m. and they're at the point of exhaustion. They can't go on anymore. And we're also told that they are now at the three and a half mile marker. We're told that they are in the middle of the sea, being seven miles in width. They're at the three and a half mile marker. Now, the scene of activity sets some context for us in three ways. First, by looking at the details here, one thing jumps out at me, and this might be an odd place to start, but I think that what we can conclude is that the disciples are determined to obey Jesus. I mean, they're determined. Jesus had said, get in the and go, and they went. And for nine hours, they've been rowing and straining against natural forces. And I think they're determined with all of their resolve, with all of their obedience, with all of their effort to do what Jesus said to do, to get to the other side. And they're at the three and a half mile marker and the wind is still against them, which tells me something, especially if I'm in the boat, that it's a lot easier to just go back than it is to keep going forward. Why? If I just turn the boat around, 
I can hoist the sail, and now the wind is not against me, but it's with me. And I can go right back to the shore that I left. But they didn't. They hunkered down. We're also given the idea that the disciples are going to fail on their own. Nine hours of rowing against a headwind left them utterly exhausted. If the storm continues and we have no indication that it was going to let up, there's no way that physically they would have been able to continue another nine hours to the other side. So they're determined to obey Jesus, but they're going to fail. They're not going to make it. Now, there's a lot we can unpack there, but we're going to save that to a B-side. Our third thing that we take from the scene is that while this is all going on, please don't forget that Jesus is watching the scene unfold. And with this in mind, we're told that Jesus, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. He would have walked right by them. And they saw him walking on the sea and they supposed it was a ghost or literally a phantom. And they cried out for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately Jesus talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. And he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Now this is also the same storm where in some of the other accounts Peter gets out of the boat and walks and that whole scene unfolds. We're going to leave it to a b-side as well but there's some cool implications and application of some of the things happening within the story that Mark doesn't include for us. But get back to the scene here for a second. The disciples, what are they doing? They're genuinely trying to obey Jesus but they're finding the task extremely difficult to accomplish on their own strength. Once the disciples here have reached the point of, of breaking, they're utterly exhausted, they're at the halfway point, the darkest juncture of the night, what happens? Jesus, coming down from the mountaintop to the shore, begins to walk across the sea. He comes to them. And he would have walked past them if they hadn't cried out for help. Understand, in the midst of your storms, Jesus is more than willing to help. As a matter of fact, he's ample and ready, but what is he always waiting for? He's just waiting to be asked. And Peter, in the story, he prays a very powerful prayer, a two-word prayer. Jesus, save me, right? Save me. And so Jesus would have passed them by if they hadn't cried out for help. But then we're told that Jesus immediately addresses their fear. He commands them to be of good cheer. He had arrived to help. He says, it is I, do not be afraid. And Jesus goes up into the boat. The wind ceases. They were greatly amazed. Now, John gives us another detail here that's fascinating. That not only when Jesus entered the boat, that the wind, the waves, that the storm ceased, but John tells us that immediately they were at the shore, instantly. Whether you want to say that they were translated or teleported three and a half miles, John makes it clear that it was like, straight up Star Trek, that like beam me up and boom, they were at the shore. Now, what blows me away about the story, once again, there's lots we could talk about concerning the storm. We're going to get to that at another point. But the thing that I want to focus in on 
is this reality. We're told that their amazement, their amazement came not at the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. Now, come on, that tripped me out, right? I mean, you're in the boat, you think it's a phantom, then you realize it's Jesus and he's walking on the water. You don't see that every day, right? You don't see it every day. And so I would be amazed at that, but that's not where we see their amazement. You would have thought that maybe they would have been amazed at the fact that the storm ceased, that the wind ceased, but they weren't. Maybe they were amazed at the reality that they were teleported three and a half miles to dry land, something that would have at least uh, brought me to wonderment. But note that Mark says, look at it again, that they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled for, which tells us why, they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Now, what this tells us, and, and, it's, and it's a bizarre line, it really is, but what it tells us is that what amazed them most about the entire scene. It wasn't all of the, the miraculous elements. It was the reality that something happens in this moment that opens their, their, their eyes. A light bulb goes off of something they had missed earlier. You see, what this tells us is that the key to unlocking the significance of this specific story rests in our understanding of the previous miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Some have called the feeding of the 5,000 a parabolic miracle. And what that means is that it, it doesn't fit the, the stereotype of a parable, and it doesn't necessarily fit the stereotype of a traditional miracle. That it's almost in and of itself a third category. It's a miracle that was done mainly to communicate a lesson, that there was an overarching point with, behind the miracle, that they should have understood, and that this story is later given to give us the interpretation of the previous story. It's kind of a weird dynamic when you begin to unpack the feeding of the 5,000. We've already mentioned that the impact of the event was so noteworthy that all four gospel writers include this miracle, the only other miracle that they all include uh, simultaneously, is the resurrection. But could it be that the miracle is included by all four gospel writers, not because of the impact it made on the disciples, but mainly because the Holy Spirit, who ultimately authored Scripture, is underlining it, highlighting it, drawing our attention to it for a big reason. Now, we're going to take like a right turn here for a moment when it comes to this story. We're going to go kind of a direction I promise you weren't thinking we were going to go. Because I want you to examine Mark chapter 6 from a broad perspective with the understanding of the book of Exodus in mind. Now, the book of Exodus, which is the second book of your Bible, the Old Testament, part of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the book of Exodus is an important book of the Bible because it, in so many ways, is typographical. It presents for us a typology or a picture, a spiritual picture of something greater. There's a literal story that presents a spiritual lesson. Now, 
I'm going to run through a few bullet points here concerning the book of Exodus that we're going to contrast back to. If you're looking for a general flow or a general idea, if you're not familiar with the book of Exodus, it begins with God calling his people, the Jews, out of bondage, out of sin, out of Egypt, which is a picture of the world, calling them to make a journey to a land of promise where they would live godly lives as a witness unto the world. God called his people out of the world to a land of promise, a land he had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of blessing, where they would set up shop and from that location be a beacon, a light to the world of a better way, of a godly way. Now, as they made their journey from Egypt to the land of promise, God supernaturally provided daily provisions for his people, didn't he? If you recall, we're told that their clothing, that their shoes didn't experience the normal wear and tear you would imagine. Though God would care for the people, God would protect the people, this journey wasn't, uh, they faced opposition, didn't they? First the Egyptians, later the Amalekites. So they experienced opposition and persecution, though God had their back. And ultimately, during this journey, God would supernaturally provide in probably the greatest way possible by sending daily bread or manna from heaven. Exodus chapter 16 is where you can read this. Now think about it for a moment. I'm going to make a comparison here. Think about the events of Mark chapter 6 as they parallel the picture presented in the book of Exodus. In the first six verses of this chapter, Jesus is rejected by whom? His own. He's rejected by his own. And what does he immediately turn his attention to? Preparing the 12, commissioning the 12, who would do what? Who would be the pillars of a new chosen people, a new people with a new commission, rejected by his own, and he turns his attention to whom? The apostles, who would make up the church. Now, instead of calling this new people out of the world to be in a location that the world could come to, as we looked at, what did God do? He did something radical. Instead of telling them to to camp down in one spot and so the world would come as a witness, he sent them into the world. Same mission to be a witness, different application. To the Jews, go to the land of promise, be a beacon of light there. To this new people, he sends them into the world with the same mission, but to be a witness out there. And then what else do we see? Well, we see the death of John, which in my mind is an illustration that the world would reject and persecute Jesus' disciples just as they had done the Jews during the Exodus. That there would still be just as much resistance to this new people from the world as there would be to the old. We're also told what? That just as God miraculously fed the Jews bread from heaven, what would Jesus do? He would provide 5,000 people daily provision by providing what? Bread. Now, here's the deal. The events of this chapter, I think, correspond to the Exodus. They culminate with the feeding of the 5,000 And I believe that the disciples 
should have seen it. I mean, every bit of this chapter is one event to the next to the next. There's a flow here. I think that they should have, at the feeding of the 5,000, recognized three important things. First, they should have recognized that God was calling them out as a new people. I mean, even Jesus' prayer with the feeding of the 5,000 should have indicated that something radical was happening. The several thousand years before that moment, the Jews always prayed after the meal, thanking God for what God had done. And in this moment, Jesus, before the meal, he blesses it and then he breaks it, a work of faith, a shift from Judaism. They should have recognized that God was calling them out as a new people, that God was doing something brand new. And they should have also recognized that they were to rely on Jesus, not just for works of faith, but also for daily provision. That we see that, that it's not just a work of faith is being illustrated in the feeding of, five, of the 5,000, but it's a life of faith that Jesus is trying to communicate. Jesus demonstrates works of faith to produce people of faith. But the third thing that they should have recognized with the feeding of the 5,000 or with the loaves that they missed, that they didn't get, was the divinity of Jesus. I'm of the opinion that when Jesus looks to heaven and he begins to break bread and he begins to feed the multitude supernaturally, the only other time that this has ever happened in the history of the nation is in the Exodus. Exodus 16, when God provided bread supernaturally. It's in that moment with the loaves that they should have recognized. Wait a second. It would be silly for us to be rallying around this man to be king because he's God. But they missed it. As a matter of fact, what's fascinating in the flow of events here, the feeding of the 5,000, the storm, when they get back to shore, According to John, Jesus has a dialogue with the Pharisees immediately following this. Let me read it for you. In John chapter 6, they said to Jesus, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? Our fathers ate manna in the desert. Interesting. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus said to them, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, okay, give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, isn't it interesting, though Mark won't include this, that John does. The disciples get the point here, for they had missed the loaves. Later on, the people begin to ask, and Jesus highlights this story, saying, "What? Well, I am the fulfillment of Exodus 16. Now, because of the three lessons that these men missed, he sends them into the storm. First, and it's most obvious, he sent them into the storm to strip them of self-confidence. They tried to obey God, but they couldn't do it on their own. Second, the storm developed reliance on Jesus. Jesus showed up in the moment that they needed him most, and he helped them. 
No command of Jesus, whether big or small, can be obeyed apart from the involvement of Jesus. Jesus is willing to help us. And the impossible commands, hey, you feed them. I can't do that. He helped then. And then he says, row to the other side and for a group of fishermen. They're like, okay, I got that. But they couldn't do it. But Jesus helped with that as well. But ultimately, ultimately, when it was all said and done, the storm forced them to recognize what they had missed, that Jesus was God. Now you might think, where do you get that? I'll explain. Jesus said to the disciples, look again. He's walking across the sea. They're freaking out. It's a ghost. Jesus says, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now this phrase, it is I. In the Greek, is the phrase, it's two words, emi ego. Now, do you realize that the only other place that Jesus ever uses this phrase is in John 8, verse 58. Let me read it for you. Jesus says that your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you're not like but 50 years old, how have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now this phrase, I am, it was a direct reference to Exodus chapter 3, where God told Moses, when Moses is like, well, who should I say sent me? And, and God said, just tell them I am who I am. Now, we find that the singular Hebrew word, hayah, is the Greek phrase, emi ego. The same phrase, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And they recognized it because they picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy. Do you realize it's the same phrase that Jesus utters cries out to the disciples in their time of need. Literally, you can translate Mark 6, verse 50 as this. Be of good cheer. I am. Do not be afraid. See, Jesus' miraculous feeding of the multitude, it should have illustrated his divinity. But this moment on the Sea of Galilee, it removed any doubt. The light bulb went off. This is why Mark tells us that they were greatly amazed beyond measure and marveled. It wasn't the wind ceasing, Jesus walking on the water, or the fact that they were teleported. They were blown away, literally amazed beyond measure and marveled. They were thrown into a position of wonderment. They were beside themselves. And, and the original, it's, they literally went insane. It's like their brains exploded. Not by anything else that happened, but by what? That Jesus, just from the midst of the storm, used a phrase that only God would ever use. He used the name of God. Be of good cheer. I am. Do not be afraid. And, and it's like they drop the nets and they're standing there and they're like, I think they probably even missed the reality that they were teleported three and a half miles. This is God. Now here's the question I want you to consider this morning. If the feeding of the 5,000 was supposed to declare Jesus' divinity, how did the disciples tragically miss it? 
we're told, for they had not understood about the loaves. So they get it. But why had they missed it? Well, Mark tells us. Specifically, Peter tells us, because this is Peter's account of the story through Mark. But he says, because their heart was hardened. Now, the word hardened, it's a medical term. It literally means to harden by the covering of a callus. Kind of, it's skin on skin is the idea. The disciples missed one of the most radical revelations of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000, because of the callousness of their heart. They were hardened. In essence, they didn't want to see it. So our next question is, why were their hearts calloused? I think it's because they resisted the revelation of who Jesus was because it threatened their preconceived notions of who they wanted him to be. And often, this is what happens in our own hearts. Our hearts are hardened. Why? Because we hear the truth. We recognize it as true. But it's not what we want to hear. We see it. We know it. But we resist it. Because it would have implications that we're not comfortable with. They wanted Jesus to be king. Mainly because they wanted to also have power. They wanted Jesus to lead a revolution because they were sick of the oppression of the Romans. They had all kinds of reasons why they wanted Jesus to be in their box. And Jesus did something that radically challenged that idea. And they resisted it. For they did not understand the loaves. Why? I don't think it's because they didn't see it. It's because they didn't want to see it. Folks, this morning, God is revealing himself to you. Jesus is revealing himself to you, and he might be speaking through the darkness and says, follow me. And you know who Jesus is. It's not an issue of your intellectual understanding. You get it. But will you respond? And when it comes to truth, we only do one of two things. We either resist it or we respond to it. But when we resist, we become hardened. We become calloused. It's not just enough to know the truth. But will you let it set you free? Now, what I love is in the presence of calloused hearts, does Jesus give up? No, he sent them into a storm. For what purpose? To reveal himself again and maybe a more radical way. For what intention? For them to quit resisting and to start responding. 
And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. They anchored there. And when they had come out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. And they ran through the whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he entered into villages and cities or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. We see a group of people who responded and they came and they touched. They reached out in faith. And Jesus did an amazing thing. So Father, with all that being said, 